0: Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us again.
1: Hey, Greg, How are you going? <laughs> it's
0: been a while, Courtney. I'm good. How are you?
1: Yeah, good, good. <laughs> it has been a while. We've taken a bit of a break, um, but we're slowly getting back into it now, I think.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So this week, we're lucky enough to be talking to somebody in person for a change.
1: Finally. Yeah. So good. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it has been a bit of a challenge over the last few months, hasn't it?
1: It has, yeah. I, I think it's much better to interview people face-to-face. So, you know, You get a feel and for what they want to talk about and how interested they are as well. So, yeah, yeah. yeah it's yeah,
0: good. It just seems like an easier conversation, it doesn't is, it? It yeah. is, yeah. Well, hopefully people listening will think the same when they listen to this.
1: Uh, well, hopefully. Um, <laughs> who knows? <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, but, yeah, this week, well, in this episode, we are lucky enough to speak with a real-life addiction doctor.
1: Yes. So we had uh, Mike Christmas who came and had a conversation with us about Uh, his background and all the stuff that he knows about addiction medicine um, and particularly uh, what's happening in WA as well. So yeah, very, very interesting conversation. However, because it was so interesting. It went for a really long time.
0: <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a long one, wasn't it? Yeah.
1: So we are going to split this one up into two episodes. And because there's a lot of um, heavy medical background and things like that, we also thought we might explain a couple of things as well um, mm-hmm. because, yeah, there's a lot of content in this one. Yeah. But we had to skim through some things, unfortunately. So, so people, going back in. <laughs>
0: so people might hear us cut in at, at different stages of the of the episodes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly. With it. a bit more information. Excellent. Well, without further ado, let's get on with the show. Yes.
2: be easy. Um, so, yes, uh, always, uh, probably always wanted to do. Um, be in medicine or social welfare, social social work, mm-hmm. um, but didn't get in in high school. Got into vet vet school first, and I thought that would be the equivalent scientifically and intellectually of medicine, in which it pretty much was. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really disliked the vet, just the veterinary model of care. Unfortunately, it's not not for me. Yeah. Um, and I'm pretty lucky. I don't think I did. I don't think I would be a very unhappy vet. So I left after three years. Um, pursued my other interest which was tennis and then uh, after several years of tennis coaching I'd always planned to go back to uni um, met my wife she was also already at human movement in, in at UWA and uh, said what did you like out of vet school I said biochemistry and physiology so she said this thing, this thing called exercise physiology so I did that for a couple of years mm-hmm. did a master's uh, then applied for medicine Got into medicine and decided I wouldn't do that. I'd do my PhD instead for a number of reasons, which, you know, it's it's impossible to really know to say to regret it or not. But um, (laughs) Mm -hmm. certainly in my area now, if I'd had another 10 years in medicine, I'd be a lot better off, Mm -hmm. um, well, obviously financially, but also um, career wise. But, um, you know, if that's confusing, things like you know, I'd love to have done psychiatry, mm-hmm. um, but it's just my my age precluded me yeah. <laughs> doing any further long, long study like that, and that could have been done in that time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I liked ICU, but that wasn't going to happen at my age when I eventually did medicine. So I finished the PhD, took a long time, and then my wife finally um, sort of agreed and also pushed me into to doing it, which I'm very grateful that I did. Mm-hmm. I'm very, very grateful I did it. Uh, um, I think it's a, a wonderful opportunity. Um, how did I get into addiction from there? Uh, there was another sort of juxtaposition around about 2000. I'd finished with a PhD and I also finished with state, well, I was still doing squad coaching in tennis. And um, so this, tennis is a, uh, a sport where most people have to have some reasonable social capital to be able to. Yep. to play it and, and, and to get anywhere in it. And I've had, spent a lot of time with that and with elite athletes and mm-hmm. uh, I really wanted a bit of a change and mm-hmm. wanted to try and be a bit more committed to what I felt I wanted my life to be. So yep. um, but medicine came along and then when I when I was doing medicine, I was pretty committed to working with, you know, people that um, don't have as much social capital. So mm-hmm. When That finished, I was thinking about, um, as I said, ICU, psychiatry, um, and then uh, messed around in the hospital for a couple of years trying to decide, unsurprisingly, and then um, did GP because it was, I knew my time was running out and I needed to get actually something done. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. um, the interesting thing in medicine, you know, you think, well, you do medicine, there's no, no problem, it's always a job. I, I think, you know, now that's very different because there's a number of medical schools, there's a lot of competition. And um, without a fellowship in something, you're really not anything. Um, a bit like law, you, you've got to do articles and then yeah, um, you can actually be yeah. employed. Um, and without a fellowship in something, yeah, it's difficult. So anyway, got that. And during, during GP, I was looking around at what, whether I could do psychiatry afterwards or not and stumbled across addiction medicine in the College of Physicians um, website, really. Mm-hmm and thought, wow, that, that sounds like me. Mm. Um, and it is in, I'm um, very pleased, I mean, it is in that it, it encompasses some social work, some psychiatry, some physical or, or, you know, medical medical stuff as well. So I was always concerned about psychiatry, you know, steering completely away from medicine mm. um, and not really doing much medicine. You can mix mix and match a bit, but, you know, it's so anyway. So addiction covers quite a lot of things mm. um, and, it, and obviously um, a lot of people that, that struggle with addiction, um, either common factors from where they come from in the start or, or, or combined with or separate, just the impact of their substances end up um, socially unwell.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. So just taking a little step backwards, what was
2: your PhD in? Mainly because, yeah. you know, both of us are doing our PhD. So, yeah. You know, it's interesting to see the, the
1: journeys and the story. Yeah, and, and
2: that's that's a bit of a furphy, to be honest. It's a, <laughs> a, a, a seven-year furphy. Yeah. Um, I find, luckily, I'm very grateful, but I find that I'm interested in lots of things to do with science and medicine and stuff. And so I can interest myself in pretty much anything, you know? and I think, and that's that's a, a you know something that just has come, and I'm very, as I say, very grateful for. But um, I I got uh, the choice to do medicine, as I said, or the PhD. And there were some circumstances around that time that led me to do the PhD rather. And and I just fell into skeletal muscle metabolism. Oh. It was supervisors, you might know that you know, which supervisors around at the time? Like what are their yeah, um, and indeed, one left. My supervisor left after a year, um, and so I was left without a supervisor. And um, uh, he had some links with biochemistry, and I went up to biochemistry. And I, right.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. I noticed you, you, do, you have done some papers on tennis-related yeah, uh, yeah science. Yeah, um, and that's actually where we first met. Yes, um, it, it is. Is That's right. Yeah. I was just a, a young, early teenager at the time. It would have been early to mid-90s, I'd say. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's right. Early yes. 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 Yeah. yes, it was. Yeah, yeah it was. <laughs> yeah, showing my age. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, yeah, so it's interesting that paths have kind of crossed a little bit. It is. Again, and, and you were actually doing your PhD with my supervisor. My PhD I was. Supervisor, like oh. I David was, Prem. yes,
2: yes. We spent many hours yeah, in the know. gym together doing whites. It <laughs> yeah. It benefited so you, him more than me. But so you okay. knew
0: David when he had hair then?
2: I did. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Yeah. Did you want to catch that for a particular reason? <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, he might be listening,
2: so. <laughs> no, no, I did. Uh, I can't uh, imagine that. Yeah. <laughs> I shouldn't be disrespectful to the professor, but he is ingrained in my brain as Preeny. Preeny. As yeah.
0: Preeny. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's now the chair in public health at UWA. So. Yes, I know. Chair he's,
2: Preeny. Uh, that's, that's um, yeah, he's done very, very well. Yeah. Um, so yes, there's there's another example. Had I stuck with academia, goodness knows where I could be, but I don't think I'd be mm. our chair of anything. But he's uh, yeah yeah we d- we did our PhD together. Um, he was uh, he had the same supervisor as I, I did. One of them we were I shared between Human Movement and biochem and his supervisor was the same one as mine at Human Movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. It's a small world, isn't it? It is. It is. Yeah. And actually, we did some stuff together for the West Coast Eagles when we first finished because we didn't have a job. Um, and brian dawson got us some work and Mm -hmm. so we did it. i think he did one project another or something like that okay (laughs) Uh, interesting Interesting.
0: so this part of the conversation the idea of a disease model of addiction came up
1: yeah and i thought it it might be good to kind of explain that a bit more because i feel like disease models they cover every disease but they can cover so many different aspects of what the diseases are and it can get confusing. So, yeah, yeah, I thought it might be good to cover it.
0: And there seems to be a bit of a debate about whether drug addiction is a learned behaviour or actually a medical disease. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the reason for that is that for some people, from the evidence that I've looked at, and there's a couple of papers in particular, one written by Wayne Hall and another one written by Volkov, uh, that direct- they don't directly contradict each other but they disagree. Right. And a lot of this has come out of America, and it seems to have come Classic out-
1: America, controversial. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and it seems to have come out because of the way America's healthcare system is funded. And the funding uh, is tied to medical conditions, so course. you need to be diagnosed with a medical condition before you can access particular funding schemes. And so they're worried that people who were experiencing drug addiction were falling through the cracks and not getting access to funding and right. then not getting treated. Because drug addiction itself wasn't originally recognised as a disease as such. It's a behaviour and a lot of people suggest it's a choice people make. Mm, mm -hmm. And so why should they get health dollars to help them with that, you know, when they should just stop taking drugs? Yeah. And then the people who talk about drug addiction as a disease is they're saying that there are certain changes in the brain that make it really difficult for people to stop taking drugs, particularly if they've been heavy drug users for a long time. And so that's where this debate is, is is drug addiction a disease and does sustained drug use lead to changes in the brain that make it more and more difficult to give up taking drugs? Or is it a behaviour that's part of our psychology mm. that we should be making a an informed choice not to take drugs or to stop taking them if we've started? And I think that's kind of where this part of the conversation starts.
1: Yeah. Sort of and yeah, it's, it's interesting kind of putting the two different kinds of models against each other as well. Like I feel like you, you just can't compare them um, mm. and, yeah, they're completely different and yeah. in reality I feel like it's probably going to be a mix of both because you can't, like I think with most things you can't figure out which one is correct. It's always yeah. kind of like a mix of both. Uh, yeah. There's
0: probably strengths and weaknesses to both arguments yeah. and I think that's fr- more or less what Mike's saying in this mm-hmm. part of the conversation is that he uses the, the disease model when it's helpful for people to understand their addiction And he uses the non-disease model, Mm. you know, to explain it in in other settings.
1: I feel like this is also something that happens a lot in psychology as well. So, yeah, when I was studying psychology, I used to get very confused because there was multiple disease models. And um, for me, I'm very logical. So I like to have kind of one answer and Mm -hmm. there never was one answer in psychology. So, yeah, I think this is something that kind of it's not just in addiction, it's in many many different kinds of diseases yeah yeah
0: and it's often complicated by the fact that we're not all of us start on a level playing field mm, for various uh-huh. reasons you know it might be where we live and how we live and who we live with and you know some of those things make oh, those us social
1: determinants that's right yes make
0: us more or less likely to get things things or to be effectively treated or whatnot um, and that's something else that came up in the conversation with mike was he talked about social capital yeah you know he was talking about Uh, people in a past life where he was coaching tennis Mm -hmm. who come from maybe more affluent wealthier suburbs Uh, and he made a he made a decision to to go into a profession where he would be dealing with people who didn't have those opportunities earlier in life and trying to help them out because they tend to be overrepresented in in things like addiction and other and health issues. I think
1: it's so interesting that he's, he's taken kind of that pathway because I feel like a lot of people wouldn't, you know. It's it's a it's a topic that a lot of people find scary and really don't want to talk about and they kind of, people who are addicted to a lot of these these drugs kind of get shifted out of view so a yeah. lot of people wouldn't even experience or understand anything like it. So, yeah, yeah it's a very interesting area.
0: It seems to end up in... Um, the concept that they call the other, which yeah. they talk about in the context of terrorism, you talk about the enemy. Wait, the there's other. a
1: book that uses the other as, like, the monsters. Right. I don't remember what book it is, though. Yeah. <laughs> they literally call it the other, though.
0: And so p- people who don't ha- haven't had any issues with drugs or alcohol over the years talk about those other people who have, mm. and they become a separate group. Even which though,
1: is so not okay. No. Not okay. Because
0: there's people from all walks of life yeah. and uh, a range of families within families who do and don't have issues with drugs and alcohol and other things. So it is it is funny to have this kind of even split. Yeah. The the people who are fine and then the other people who are not, you know, who've got all these problems. Oh so, yes. Um, but I feel like conversations like this are useful for trying to break down some of those barriers. I so,
1: agree. Sometimes you just need a you do need to have a model um to help people understand what's happening behind it and multiple models can help that.
0: Yeah. And I, and I think anything that leads to things like drug use and drug addiction being treated as a health problem mm, rather than uh-huh. a crime problem or a or a behavioural issue or something like that yeah. is, it can only benefit society because obviously we want to try and help as many people as possible.
1: Yeah, exactly. And it, like if we're uh, looking at behaviours and things like that, that is something that we can definitely change um, as we've all seen with... Hand-washing, you know, that's increased dramatically because we've we've got a model behind it and we can understand it, so therefore we do it. Yeah. So uh, behaviour change is something that that we could really focus on with a lot of different diseases. Mm. So having a model is good.
0: Yeah. So it seems like the conclusion we've come to is that um, thinking about it as a disease model is helpful in some cases and mm-hmm. probably not helpful in others. And yeah, so, so
1: it's multifactorial, yeah. very complex. <laughs>
0: so both things should be kept on the table. Yeah. Yeah, all right. Well, we'll get back to our conversation with Mike.
1: All
0: right, sounds good. So with um, addiction medicine, so uh, you read sort of stories and articles from all over the world about addiction medicine and the way it's handled in different different ways. Uh, people have proposed, some people propose a disease model of addiction mm. and others talk about it as a behavioural or psychological mm. issue.
2: Yeah. Well, what's your view on that? That's, that's a complicated question. <laughs> it, is, it is. Um and there's two schools of thoughts and I, I'll mainly propose the their thoughts rather than probably than mine because I, I haven't I haven't really I haven't really come to a, a solid conclusion of which one is mm-hmm. which I, I think because my day-to-day work is dealing with the end result I think the argument it has it, it does have the potential to both improve things for patients and also, make things a little bit worse for patients, Um, but uh, particularly the disease model, because the disease disease model is, you know, you you probably read, you know, you can can propose that that's going to increase funding, and particularly in the US, where um, insurance is such a big part of of driving your your costs of medical care um, and and getting your medical care, uh, to say that you've got a a brain disease um, may attract more funding and may attract more a, a better insurance or, or something along those lines, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if you've got something that's a learned behaviour, like a bad habit um, or a habit not doing very well for you, then um, maybe it's, it's different in that way and it's different in attracting funding. So that's one, one way of looking at it. Um, so Nora Volko is the director of NIDA, who is the National Institute of Drug Ab- Abuse. Um, which is part of the National Institute of Health. In the US, they have two separate groups. They have the NIDA and they have the National Institutes on Alcohol and Alcohol Abuse or something along Mm -hmm. those lines, Alcoholism and Alcohol Abuse or something along those lines. So they separate that and just alcohol in one and all other drugs in the other. So she's in NIDA and uh, most of her research is in um, neuroscience and she's been a major proponent of of, um, addiction as a brain disease. And their argument is that um, essentially you, you can uh, do fluorodeoxyglucose uptake scans, which are basically just, you know, glucose-labelled isotopes, um, and brain being obli- obligate glucose user, you know, whatever your uptake is, must mean. That's what your brain cell metabolism is. It's one proxy. Um, and so they use that and they say, well, you know, if, if there's a decrease in uptake in for example, a cerebral cortex, or in, in um, deeper areas of the brain, but particularly the cerebral cortex. And you can compare that to the endocardium in someone who's had a, a heart attack with the myocardium, which is dead, um, in areas then the uptake is poor there as well. So you compare one brain with one heart and we say, well, the heart's a disease, definitely. And so the brain, why, why is that not a disease? Um, some of these changes in the brain don't reverse so, you know, we've got pathology, therefore we should have a disease model. Um, Mark Lewis is one of the main, I think, main proponents of um, addiction as a learned behaviour. He's a neuroscientist and also um, a psychologist who has specialised in his research on, on education, on, on developmental um, biology or how people learn, how kids learn. And he will say that, well, you know, the brain changes all the time, um, changes enormously, as we know, um, during development uh, and learning. And he's got, you know, he shows evidence of um, parts of the brain, the cingulate virus, which is supposedly linked to decision making, um, where over years of substance use, you lose grey matter volume. And then in abstinence, up to 20 weeks, he's got one graph, we, we, the another area the singular guy, it's not the same area, but another area has an increase back towards normal in mm-hmm. um, gray matter volume. Um, so he's saying, Well, you know, it's the brain we know is plastic. Um, you learn something really, really well. Um, we the brain's designed uh so that we can learn new tasks and then get on with something else. Mm-hmm. So constantly improving. So when we learn to drive a car, you know, we all know that example. To think about it with your frontal cortex. Later on, you don't think use your frontal cortex. It's all embedded in in very um, refined neural, path, neural pathways. Same thing for substance mm-hmm. use. Um, and then you have to relearn different new behaviours, and and you can. So I don't know uh, which which model is helpful. I think you use a bit of both. I, I do. I, I use a bit of both because I think. The d- disease model kind of helps in helping people to understand, and, and my colleagues particularly mm-hmm. as well, um, trying to trying to reduce stigma. I should say, though, there's some evidence that the d- disease model has increased stigma because mm-hmm. people with a drug addiction are now told they've got a brain disease um, or brain disorder, and, they don't, you know, that, that doesn't fit, sit, sit well with a lot of people. Yeah. And, and then people don't want to go for treatment or don't want to, Involve themselves in that. Mm -hmm. Um, On the other flip side, that was what mental health argument was, wasn't it? You know, Mm -hmm. that if it's not really just you being a weak person or an abnormal person in some other way, it's it's a a problem like asthma or like anything else. Right. So I use, having said a little bit about that evidence, that's what I use with patients about. This is a, and particularly doctors but also patients, if you look at all of the specialties of physician, um... Except infectious diseases, I don't think we cure anything right. that I can think of. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Neurology,
2: know. rheumatology, respiratory, mm-hmm. uh, respiratory. I suppose if you get the infectious diseases, people involved and you cure pneumonia, mm-hmm. sure. Everything else is a managed disease, reduced yeah. in prevention. Yeah, and it's yeah, just managed. And it. your
0: risks, obviously, if you've had it once, the risk of getting a really bad. Sort of bout of it again, and probably higher than someone who's never had it, sort of thing. Yes, or yeah. an
2: exacerbation, I think, is mm. what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly because right. so, you never get rid of rheumatoid arthritis. Right, you never get rid of asthma. Mm-hmm. Um, you just manage it, and you have exacerbations. Yeah. yeah, we call them relapses in addiction medicine, but doctors call those other things exacerbations. Mm-hmm. Um, so no one gets through rheumatoid arthritis um, without having exacerbations. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you increase the, the medications that you use, and then you back them down to your monitored level. And that's how those diseases go. No rheumato- rheumatologist cures anything that mm-hmm. they, they treat. Um, same for psychiatry, mm-hmm. um, but certainly same for us. And when people relapse, um, they engage in treatment at a heavier, more intense level, mm-hmm. and then they go back to abstinence and they have a period of abstinence, which is what you'd say maintenance in any other... So that disease model kind of helps in that way. Um, It doesn't take away, and I think the one thing that distinguishes my area than anything else is that the choice. Initially, there is a choice. Mm -hmm. Um, Even if you argue subsequently there's very little choice, um, there's still a choice. Mm -hmm. And so other doctors will say, well, you didn't choose asthma, you didn't Mm -hmm. choose uh, rheumatoid arthritis, true. Uh, having said that, you know, you can argue about choosing cancer. You know, depends if you smoke cigarettes. Cool.
1: Well, yeah, you, you, you that's like,
0: true. You drink but lots of alcohol. You know, There's probably two types, involuntary cancer where someone gets it that they didn't smoke or they didn't have the risk factors yeah. and then voluntary cancer where they've that's contributed to it. <laughs> that sounds terrible. It's, pretty <laughs> bad. it's certainly
2: increased their risks. Yeah. 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 Their, their yeah.
0: lifestyle's probably given them more chance of getting it.
2: And we know that in addiction or substance use disorder, that people come with predisposition, mm-hmm. yeah. that somewhere between 40 and 60% of, of your genetic uh, predisposition, sorry, of your predisposition comes from your genetic loading. So yeah. um, that's not unlike any other medical condition.
1: Is it just one gene that's associated with addiction? Because like, no. I've been reading, it's multiple, multiple. right? Yeah, so it's the it's usual story. Mm. It's
2: the yeah. usual story where, you know, and and that, and that that's again not uncommon in yeah. medicine generally. You know, if you look at, I think mean, you know, say uh, Duchenne muscular dystrophy. If you've got that gene, it's that specific gene, and nothing you can do will, will stop you getting Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Yeah. Equally, if you have um, scurvy. If you go without vitamin C for long enough, whatever your genetic predisposition will, you'll get scurvy. Mm -hmm. Um, Everything else seems to sit somewhere in between. Right. And then when you look at individual diseases, you say, well, what's the asthma gene? It's multiple. And then you have the epigenetic mechanisms as well. Um, And even now, I think you you guys probably read more than me, but we're talking about, uh, say, for domestic violence and social disadvantage, that you can pass down epigenetic mechanisms in your own genes. Mm um that influence the child um and right. so, so it's not all just about it's not always nature it's a yeah of nature. that's right that's right yeah.
1: yeah so just as a side note um i've been reading about the genetics of dilated cardiomyopathy mm-hmm. um and that has it's, it's similar again it's like mm-hmm. there's a whole bunch of genes that affect it um and i think it's the same thing so there's exposure that occurs in the person and then they they can pass that exposure down to their children. So Mm -hmm. I guess that's the same in addiction as well. So if their parents have addiction, the kids are more likely to do that as well, purely with the genes.
2: Yeah, and then you've got the environment. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Exactly. So in that way, disease model, it's not unlike Mm -hmm. other diseases. The learned behaviour also makes sense is that if you – have something like, do, you know, the dopamine model. You know, you release large amounts of dopamine. We know that dopamine is a highly motivating hormone. Mm-hmm. Um, people kind of simplistically look at it, I think, mainly in, in, in my field particularly as, as the pleasure bit. So, yep. if you, you know, if you enjoy it enough, you'll do it again. Mm-hmm. That's all frontal lobe right. kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, dopamines are really uh, good focused focus at sort of um, getting you... you I suppose getting your neurons and and your synapses pruned, so that you've got this very efficient pathway Mm -hmm. that requires very little frontal component to activate. Right. And if you think about how patients' experiences of that, uh, I just don't know. I ended up in the pub and I was ordering a drink. And you try and break it down. It's well, yeah, you know, it's not that simple, though, is it? You know, what, what happened before that? Well, I left rehab. I just had an argument and I just left. But I just found myself in the pub, and you know, I like to try and break it down. You know, well, you didn't find yourself in the pub; you went transported there by some sort of, you know, um, outer space kind of thing. Yeah. But it is difficult for them, yeah. you know. And you think, well, how much of that automaticity yeah. is all part of that? Were well, they just not
0: thinking, just doing? No, it. well, it's 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 yeah.
2: yeah, nucleus accumbens and ventral tegmental area, and and mm-hmm. and and those limbic systems going straight to the frontal cortex, where mm-hmm. where we know that the frontal cortex is potentially damaged, and the pa- pathways to the frontal cortex are thought to be so much more powerful mm-hmm. than the pathways backwards. Yeah. Um, and a good example of that is adolescence. Mm-hmm. You know, their frontal lobe develops so late mm-hmm. that you've got really good accelerators from the limbic system driving people to use substances once they've started yeah. and pretty in, inadequate brakes. Yeah. Yeah. So,
0: it's new. and they call Perfect. they call that a lot of the time a lack of consequential thinking. Don't they? Yes, in juveniles, yeah. that's right. Yeah. yeah, and and into deep adulthood for some men, yes, still continues. His brain develops quite a bit later than a lot of yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. yeah, that's yeah. True. And, and if you look at the the spikes in death and the risk of death at certain ages, oh, comparing like males deaths. and females, yeah. you can see mm. that that's mm. somewhat related. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. Um, now, not all drugs are equal, are they? So a, the way you treat a patient who's got an opioid di- addiction is going to be different to someone who comes in for alcohol or yeah. methamphetamine, yeah, yeah, for yeah, example. Yeah.
2: yeah. In, in gen- general principles are similar. Yeah. Um, it, um, withdrawal treatment first, if someone needs that, mm-hmm. and then um, relapse prevention,
1: mm-hmm. which is the hard bit. Yeah. And at what point does something become an addiction? Like so, you know, a lot of the arguments I've heard is, "Oh, it's just a casual thing," like all this kind of stuff. Mm. At what point does it reach addiction status?
2: When when compulsion is a, a is a feature, that's probably the that's the main yep. thing because compulsion indicates a loss of control. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So you know, even someone with OCD um, recognizes clearly that you know their hands, for example, are really painful and cracked and mm. bleeding but i'll still wash them yeah mm-hmm. and while they're washing them we'll be thinking i don't want to do this this is stupid i hate doing this but kind of have to yeah mm-hmm. so that compulsion um is pretty similar yeah. i think mm. in, in drug use i, I you know I imagine it's much similar mm-hmm. um so compulsion um and dsm-5 is what we use now um we've moved on from that for text revision and, and so dsm-5's got unique you know, categories of of, of what you list for a substance use disorder. The interesting thing with that is that if you've got, well, I think, well, interesting to me, I don't know. <laughs> mate, it might be interesting to your podcast. Yeah. But um, so someone who, and we, we teach this to, to our uh, resident medical officers and the registrars and stuff, and, you know, someone who's, um, grandma who's got a Norsepan patch, which is buprenorphine, which is an opioid, mm-hmm. um, and has had that on the arm for, you know, uh, osteoarthritis or something, probably shouldn't have it, but anyway, someone's prescribed it, and then she's been on that for five years. So she, that person will develop a level of tolerance everyone does to that long-term opiate. Mm-hmm. Um, so they'll probably need a bit more um, as they go to manage their pain. She probably has accepted that and just got, got on with life. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, if you, But if you took the patch off because she's tolerant to it, she'll necessarily therefore have a, a withdrawal syndrome of some sort because you've removed it abruptly and the brain's adapted to it, which is tolerance. Um, and so she might feel a bit nauseous or, you know, a bit uncomfortable, restless, not really know what it was. But by definition then, she has tolerance and she has a withdrawal episode. Wow. So according to the um, DSM-5, she has a use disorder, oh. except the DSM-5 has a caveat that says if your two criteria out of nine, which is all you need for a use disorder mild, if your two criteria are only depend- um, withdrawal and tolerance, mm. then you don't categorize characterises them okay so to get a use disorder and I raise that because people talk about all the different terms that are thrown around which is not helpful really I don't think in our field but addiction mm-hmm. does that mean it really as I said earlier it means loss of control so how would grandma with the pan patch present with an addiction um and really it's it's all of the social sorts of things that we wow. that, that are listed in the DSM-5 you would recognize it by her Turning up early for her script mm-hmm. and saying I've lost it or the dog's stolen it or whatever happened. Mm-hmm. Um, I need a higher dose. Um, potentially becoming a bit belligerent and, and, and sort of abrasive and pushy because she really needs that higher dose and you don't understand. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe being a bit pushy with reception about getting an appointment with your GP practice. Why haven't I got the appointment I need it now? You don't understand that kind of stuff. So all of those are sort of starting to be what we call aberrant drug use behaviours. Um, obviously, things like forging scripts and, and those sorts of things are aberrant drug use behaviours, and that's kind of where we we think of addiction. Um, mm-hmm. I suppose if you want to classi- classify it as something, but they all represent loss of control.
1: Right.
2: Mm-hmm. And is the is there still a
0: distinction between abuse and dependence? Like no. there was in the DSM four? Um, no, 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 no. So okay. they've
2: taken that out. Yeah. Um, so it's all lumped together as use disorder now. Okay. Uh, except they've taken out in. Um, the uh, forensic or criminal um, issues—have you had criminal issues mm-hmm. with your substance use? Largely because cannabis is obviously legal now in many many countries, so it's it's kind of irrelevant, really.
0: Yeah. Okay. So
2: that's that's changed the landscape quite. It a bit. has changed a lot. So the terms dependence and use uh, and abuse are still used by ICD ten. Mm-hmm. Yep. But not DSM five. Okay. So if you want to get funded for your inpatient unit. From the state government. Yep. Oh, you need to use disorder independence Right, all, they will use ICD-10 codes. Right, okay. Interesting. That's Do you been,
1: think the ICD-10 will catch up? I, well,
2: the, the new one is coming sometime, but I yeah. don't see there's any plan from what I've seen yeah, to change that. Seen that. Yeah, I not on that. think it's going to stay as it is. It'll be another US-Europe kind of
0: yeah divide. Right. Courtney, we're going to stop the conversation there.
1: I think so. We've got to leave half of it for next week or the week after.
0: It was a really fascinating talk about disease models and a bit about dopamine, which we'll actually go into in a bit more detail in the second half. Yeah, absolutely. Um, But yeah. Once again, thanks to Mike for taking the time with us and obviously we look forward to bringing you guys part two yeah, next week. it's
1: been a really great conversation and it gets even better in the second half. Yeah,
0: the sequel's even better than the original. That's right. <laughs> All right, thanks everyone thank for Thank listening. you. The Meaning of Health podcast is produced with the support of the School of Population and Global Health the Education Enhancement Unit at the University of Western Australia. The podcast is produced by Craig Cumming and Courtney Webber with music by Craig Cumming.